Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the day that you have blessed us with, this Sunday, this first day of the week, where, Lord, your church gathers, gathers corporately to worship and praise you and to honor you and your son and to exalt your son. Lord, we worship you in all these different facets that we have thus far in a worship service through song and music and singing and through prayer. And this morning, Lord, the great blessing we have to participate in uh, your supper, the Lord's Supper, your Son's Supper, communion. Lord, we worship you with our tithes and our offerings. We, we worship you in the context of your word, the preaching and teaching of your word that will take place not just here from this pulpit, but in all of our fellowship groups and classes as well, and even throughout the week. And Lord, may you be glorified in this. And may you help us now, Lord, to best understand your word from this book of Titus, what Paul has to say to us that is inspired by your Holy Spirit, and Lord, how we are to put this into practice in the context of our lives as members of the body of Christ and members of this local body of Calvary Bible Church and as individuals. We pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name, amen. There are uh, things in life that we we give order to. Now you can go ahead and turn to Titus, Titus uh, chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Things in life that we give order to. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, we were playing on our softball team this year, and then of course in baseball you have a batting order, right? An order of who's going to step up to the plate first, second, third, what position they're going to play. Sometimes, uh, if you're like me, you are a uh, list maker, and maybe you make a list of things to do. And sometimes on that list, it doesn't matter what order they go in, they just need to get done at some point. But sometimes you decide to prioritize them, and okay, I'm going to do this first, and then this, and then this, and this, and you give them an order. Um, Instructions. Fellas, especially, right? Right? Sometimes we have issues with instructions. We don't want to follow the order. We just think, ah, I can just put this together, you know. I I can't remember what stories I've told now, but uh, the worst for me was putting together our uh, oldest son, well, all our kids, the crib. It was, the the instructions were like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, and you, you couldn't even barely read them, and you're thinking, if I get this wrong, my child's life could be at stake, you know, and and uh, so you're trying to do things in the right order. What about salvation? We've been talking about salvation these last few weeks. Is there an order to how salvation works, how it, how it plays out? And, and theologians throughout the years have tried to tackle this, and, and one uh, um, or a couple of them coined a phrase, the the ordo salutis, the order of salvation in the Latin. Uh, Let me just share with you how some of the leading Christian traditions have represented the order of salvation. This is from just a a tremendous uh, resource, uh, Bruce Demarest's book, The Cross and Salvation. The order of salvation in Roman Catholic theology, for instance, is usually expressed in terms of the grace mediated by the church's sacraments, starting with baptism. That would be first and foremost in the order of things. Baptism, of course, occurring with an infant especially, which they say imparts supernatural life by regenerating the soul and uniting it with Christ. In addition, water baptism is said to remove the guilt and penalty of original sin. The order continues with the sacraments of confirmation, the the Eucharist, which is Mass and Communion, 
penance and extreme unction, otherwise known as last rites. These are all works of righteousness, things that you would do for salvation. Lutheran theology also came up with an order of things. Lutheran theology seeks to define and distinguish the Holy Spirit's multiple acts of grace without creating an artificial separation of each one. The elements are, are kind of more or less melded together and they all have uh, an, an overlap with one another. There's another theology known as Arminian, not Armenian, Arminian theology, which typically represents the order of salvation in this way. There is a universal external calling, whereas God extends the call to salvation to all people by a general work of the Spirit in the soul and by explicit gospel proclamation. Then prevenient or preceding grace, which then allegedly proceeds universally from the cross, alleviates the effects of depravity upon people, thereby freeing all persons for moral and spiritual action. This would then be followed by repentance and faith, since every person is transformed by that prevenient grace, the human will is now capable of freely turning from sin unto Christ. I hope you're following me with this. Given the fact that God commands sinners to work out their own salvation, conversion then is a synergistic activity, meaning it is both God and man in combination for a person's salvation. It then continues with justification, sanctification. Finally, there's Uh, perseverance, which is where things really kind of get dicey um, because many Arminians believe that you can lose your salvation if you are not persevering in the right way or persevering enough. This takes us to another form of theology, covenant reformed. And, And this theology insists that every aspect of salvation is grounded in the covenant of grace, it occurs in union with Christ and is brought forth by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that sounds, uh, yeah, it doesn't sound so weird. Uh, and lastly, we would give you uh, evangelicals in the broadly Reformed tradition. That would be us here at Calvary Bible, which uh, insists that the whole of salvation from eternity past to eternity future proceeds from the grace of God centering on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and is then wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, after considering Scripture in all of these matters, Demarest comes to these, these overarching conclusions about this possible ordo salutis, which I, I think are scripturally sound. He basically comes up with four categories The first is the plan and provision of salvation. And that, of course, would be everything that God has already predestined before the foundation of the world back in eternity past, right? Secondly, then we have the application of salvation. This is all that happens to somebody at the time of conversion. Thirdly, there's the progress of salvation, which we call sanctification right now you've been converted it's your um, life between then and when you would die and go to be with the Lord or he would return and then fourthly we have perfecting of salvation which is what we understand as glorification when we are finally fully resurrected with Christ new body souls together and we get to live perfectly with him in his eternal kingdom To try to break it down more into a further ordering starts to get extremely difficult. And I tell you all of this because this morning we will continue to look at three more aspects of salvation that that people often wonder, where do these kind of fit into the order of things if indeed there is an order of salvation? So, You got your Bibles open there to Titus chapter 3. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 
We will continue to read again verses 4 to 7, Titus chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Now, so far in our study here, the salvation study, we've considered salvation in the the first two parts, which is the kindness and love of God, followed then by the mercy of God. And this week, we consider the role of the Holy Spirit of God in salvation. And we'll look at that in three respects. We see here in our text the giving of the Holy Spirit, the regenerating by the Holy Spirit, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now, what we're going to do, I'll just let you in on this real briefly, but um, we're going to finish up this little section next week, uh, which is all about grace, and then, and then we're going to do something special for um, our Reformation Sunday, and then when we come back, I-, I want us to talk more about the Holy Spirit. I just think that that is uh, uh, an area that we could do with some more teaching and understanding, and so I'm going to spend a few more messages, we're going to kind of jog back to this. And, um, and just kind of uh, uh, talk more in-depthly about the Holy Spirit. So you're not going to get everything about the Holy Spirit today, mind you. It's just going to be pertaining to, these, to what we see here in our text. And we're going to uh, start out and go back to... We're, we're going to start at the end here and work our way backwards. Verse 6. Verse 6. This is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Where Paul says, Whom he poured out upon us richly... Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, the he that's doing the pouring is, of course, God the Father. It is the Father that is our loving and kind Savior of verse 4. It's the Father who showed us mercy. And it's the Father who saved us, both in verse 5. So, the he of verse 6 is still referring to the Father, having poured out the Holy Spirit upon us, who have been regenerated and renewed. At this point, we should ask some questions, such as, who or what is the Holy Spirit, and what is the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the first explicit meaning of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is right there at the beginning of Genesis 1, verse 2. Genesis 1, verse 2, which reads, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, the Hebrew word there is ruach, which has multiple meanings, but at its core, it means breath. It means wind. It means spirit. As spirit, it literally means to breathe quickly in the sense of animation, animating something. But it also refers to the spirit of the living, breathing being, dwelling in the life of men and animals, and of course, as the spirit of God. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma, And also means breath, wind, and spirit in the sense of the life that resides in human beings. It is also the immaterial part of a human. That is to say, his heart, his mind, the seat of emotions and thoughts that originate, yes, in the brain, but are understood as a person's spirit. Then there is spirit as in a simple and corporal immaterial being thought of as possessing higher capacities than man does in his 
present state, right? Uh, This could include created spirits, as in man's spirit, or other spirit beings, such as angels or demons, even Satan. And of course, there's also spirit, as in John 4.24, which tells us that God is spirit. He is indeed invisible, unseen. Then there's also the Spirit of God, capital S, and even the Spirit of Christ. Turn with me, uh, you can keep your bookmark in uh, Titus there, and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm just going to back up there, not too far, 2 Corinthians 3. This chapter is about the ministry of the new covenant. In 3.3, Paul has... Chapter 3, verse 3, has Paul telling the Corinthian believers that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, notice first that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned, Son, Spirit and Father. By the way, this is also true of our Titus text. We see all three in our text. And and now pertaining to this phrase, Spirit of the living God, the uh, Greek literally reads Spirit living God, with the of and the the correctly being added in to uh, the Greek text there. In other words, we understand this as God the Father's Holy Spirit. Look down to verse 17. Verse 17 of that same chapter where Paul writes, Now the Lord is the Spirit. Here we we have the definite article in the Greek. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And this again tells us that God the Father and the Holy Spirit are one and the same. There are plenty of other verses that confirm this, such as in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. This is that story of Ananias and Sapphira, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then you, you drop down in the next uh, bit there, and it says, you, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God equating the Holy Spirit with God. Again, one and the same. Let me just quickly show you that the Holy Spirit of God is also the same as the Spirit of Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Let's keep going a little bit more to the left there. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. In Romans 8, 9 and leading up to it, Paul is talking about the difference between the law of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, versus the law of sin and death. Being of the Spirit and being or being of the flesh when he says in verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to him. And so we see that the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, again, are interchangeable, one and the same. Of course, there are other passages that we could turn to to show that not only are the Father and the Holy Spirit one, but that the Father and Son are also one, and the Son and the Spirit are also one. That will be for another time. Getting back to our Titus text, we can then understand how it is that God the Father is indeed the one who has the authority then to pour out His Holy Spirit upon us, saving us. Pouring out out is more than just some kind of trickling out, friends. When I'm watering my plants, I'm not out there with a little eyedropper going drop, drop, and drop, drop, right? I got my watering can and it's... If it's not coming out quick enough, then I just dump the can over. Pour it out. Give it plenty. 
not some kind of little trickling. Pouring out has the idea of giving generously. In Romans 5 and verse 5, Paul tells us how the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And along these lines, God's Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us by God richly, abundantly, generously, exceedingly. Also in the context of salvation, Romans 2 and verse 4 has Paul asking, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Riches they're applying to all three of those. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Colossians 3 and verse 16 exhorts us, Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Abundantly, generously, exceedingly dwell in you. 1 Timothy 6.17 says it's God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And 2 Peter 1.11 tells us that the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. <clears throat> now here's the thing. It's, it's not that, that God has to be careful to make sure that he just you know gives us the the right amount or or the full amount of his holy spirit in order for us to be saved oh because if i don't give them enough then they won't get saved no it's not like it's not like putting <coughs> excuse me one cup of of sugar in the lemonade versus the four cups that the recipe calls for and because of that now the drink's going to be sour god doesn't make mistakes and he and he knows exactly what of the holy spirit we need for salvation so this idea that he is pouring the holy spirit out richly upon us is paul wanting us to be fully aware of god's generous and and merciful grace-filled loving nature that we would know that he richly pours out his Holy Spirit upon us, even though we don't deserve it. I love the ice cream counter at Rite Aid. <laughs> love it. Been going to that ice cream counter since I was, you know, this high. We had a thrifty uh, drugstore in Hayward where I grew up. Now, when you go to the ice cream counter, it really depends on the employee that you get scooping the ice cream because there are law scoopers and there are grace scoopers. <laughs> the law scooper takes that little cylinder, you know, ice cream scooper, and they kind of push it in there and then they kind of scrape it across the top to make sure it's just even. You're not getting any extra, right? Puts it in the cone and hands it to you. The gray scooper, you know, digs it in and lops it on there and it's coming out the edge and then they look down and go for more and you're thinking, no, I just ordered a single and they just, you know, slap some more on there. I'll tell you what, if the Lord's scooping your ice cream, it's gray scoops, okay, man? It's going to be... I love Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he, the Lord, will have compassion on him and to our God for he will, what? Abundantly pardon. And lastly, God does this, this rich pouring out of his Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is Christ who does all of the work of salvation. He is the one who came to earth emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Romans 6.23 reminds us the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 has Paul writing, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. 
And of course, Acts 17, 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That's the question. Will you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior today? Right here, right now. There are, yes, such things as deathbed conversions. There, of course, is the thief on the cross. We are so thankful for that. Baseball great Ty Cobb was one of those deathbed conversions. The man played 3,033 games and for 12 years led the American League in batting average. For four years, he batted over 400. On his deathbed of July 17, 1961, he accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, saying this, quote, You tell the boys I'm sorry it was the last part of the ninth that I came to know Christ. I wish it had taken place in the first half of the first, end quote. But friends, we have to be reminded too that deathbed conversions really are the exception. They're not the rule. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of your salvation if you have yet to put your faith, hope, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't wait. So let us now turn our attention as to what the Holy Spirit is actually doing at the time of salvation. Whereas Jesus provides that atoning sacrifice, the Holy Spirit provides the work needed in the heart of those who will believe. That takes us to our second point, regenerating by the Holy Spirit. Regenerating by the Holy Spirit. We return to verse 5 to get a running start here. So back in, uh, oh man, I should have put my little, <laughs> there it is, it is in there, my marker. Verse 5, to get a running start, he, that's referring back to the Father, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some different viewpoints in regard to this phrase, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And questions come up such as, such as are these two separate events or are they one and the same? Does washing go only with regeneration or renewing as well? Does the Holy Spirit only go with renewing and regeneration as well? And I believe the best way to understand this, grammatically speaking, is that this is two aspects of one event, whereas washing applies to both regeneration and renewing, both of which are accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Now, washing here uh, is not about a literal or physical washing as in baptism, but rather it is used as a metaphor for spiritual cleansing, meaning the removal of one's sins. As in Ephesians 5.26, where the context is what a husband must do to his wife that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her <coughs> by the washing of the water with the Word. It's the Word of God that washes. It's the Word of God that cleanses. Turn with me to John chapter 3. <clears throat> John chapter 3. It's that classic story of Nicodemus coming to speak to Jesus. <clears throat> John 3, picking up in verse 5. We're not going to read the whole text, but I just wanted you to see some of these things. I know it's one many of you are familiar with. In John 3, 5, again, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus about the need to be born again. Saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now here again, friends, water is not referring to baptism, but spiritual cleansing. Jesus will say to Nicodemus down in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? 
And I believe that Jesus had in mind that great Old Testament, New Covenant language of spiritual washing and cleansing found in Ezekiel 36. Where there, God says through the prophet, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. (coughs) In this case of our Titus text, cleansing that is taking place is through regeneration and renewing. Now these two terms can have similar meanings. Regeneration in the Greek is a, a compound word from again and generation or to generate. So again, generating. And it can be also restoration, renovation, rebirth. Even Webster's uh, says formed or created again, spiritually reborn or converted, restored to a better, higher, more worthy (coughs) state. And these are all good definitions. Uh, I don't know why my mind went there, but I remember catching lizards as a kid and stuff. And if you grab the lizard by the tail, sometimes what happened? Tail pops off, right? But never fear because it will regenerate itself. And it will have a tail as good as new in no time. I scraped up my leg this season playing on the softball team here. The skin on my leg didn't just die and get left somewhere out there in the dirt. But eventually, it scabbed over. And it actually regenerated itself, giving me new skin. In the broader culture of the Bible, it was used to describe... The restoration of something to its original pristine state. The earth, of course, was restored after the flood. The Jews believed that the Messiah would restore Israel to her rightful rule and reign. It's used this word in Matthew 19, 28, as to what's coming for the whole of creation when Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you that you have followed me, you who have followed me in the regeneration When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now for a sinner who is fully, totally, completely depraved, dead in our trespasses, with no ability to change our pitiful state of unrighteousness, the only hope of eternal life is if we can receive a new spiritual nature by being regenerated, which is to say that our soul can undergo a spiritual rebirthing. Back in that John 3, 3 passage, in his conversion with Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We must be born again. We must be regenerated. Listen to the way some of our greatest theologians and preachers have described regeneration he's a he's a more on the academic side but lewis burkhoff in his systematic theology gives this definition regeneration is that act of god by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy meaning holy in god's eyes 18th century preacher George George Whitfield, he's one of my favorites because Whitfield was an actor. George Whitfield believed regeneration is that instantaneous creation wrought on the soul by the Holy Spirit producing new inclinations, new desires, and new habits. As the Spirit quickens people dead in trespasses and sins, they become partakers of the divine nature, thereby being renewed in the divine image. 
in his own words, quote, our souls, those still the same as to essence, yet are so purged, purified, and cleansed from their natural dross, filth, and leprosy by the blessed influence of the Holy Spirit that they may properly be said to be made new, end quote. Charles Spurgeon believed regeneration involves the spiritual renovation of one's entire being, the implantation of the divine life and mystical union with Christ. The new birth is a change of the entire nature from top to bottom in all senses and respects, end quote. One of our modern-day theologians, Wayne Grudem, simply states, Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. And commentator George Knight says that washing of regeneration might better be translated the washing of a new beginning or the washing of conversion. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and then 4 and 5 speaks of regeneration when Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us, what? Alive. Alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, has Paul writing, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now, how is this regeneration accomplished? Our text tells us, by the Holy Spirit. Commentator John Kitchen writes this. He says, the reality of regeneration is affected by a direct act of the Holy Spirit in applying the saving work of Christ to the individual, end quote. Friends, we don't know how he does it. We just know that he does. He does. In this sense, the Holy Spirit is the one who actually accomplishes the will of the Lord in the hearts of those that God is saving. He is the one doing the regenerating. Let's just switch gears here for a minute and ask what might be then some of the further effects of regeneration? And to this I turn back to Demarest's book, The Cross and Salvation, where he gives, he gives five results to consider. Five results. One, intellectually. Intellectually. Regeneration enables minds of sinners, once blind and ignorant of spiritual truths, to comprehend the things of God. We have different scriptures we could give you, but I'm, I'm just going to give you these in kind of quick bullet point fashion. I would say, of course, that is absolutely true as a a young man that grew up in the church as a kid and then was you know kind of far away from God and and didn't get saved until after Julie and I met and got married I had a lot of head knowledge but no heart It, it hadn't gone into my heart and at that moment it did it did and I I was able to kind of connect the dots now with all the intellectual things I had learned about the Bible and Jesus, and it started to make sense. Also, volitionally, volitionally, the new birth liberates believers' wills from moral bondage, enabling them to affirm and pursue kingdom values. In other words, friends, now with this regeneration, we have new affections, we have new cares, we have new wants, we have new desires towards Godly things towards the kingdom. Thirdly, emotionally, regeneration initiates the reintegration of disordered affections and feelings. As as Paul wrote, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love and self-discipline. 
And he goes on to say, twice-born persons are far more capable of manifesting love, empathy, compassion, etc., more than once-born persons. And I might add uh, that you are now able to do this even with people you don't particularly care for, or even your enemy. It is how and why we can pray with full hearts the way Pastor Brock did for um, those that have even committed atrocities in this life. Fourthly, morally and ethically, regenerate believers are freed from depraved and enslaving passions. In fact, these things will actually become deplorable to you. You will start to see sin for what it is, and in most cases, it will it'll frankly turn you off. I think one thing for me that, that was almost immediately affected there was language and hearing language, especially bad language, foul language. And being in the film industry, it's like, oh man, you just hear it all the time on, on sets and things. And it was funny, when I was in seminary, and I was still doing commercial work, I used to play this little game with myself. Uh, how long would it take before I'm on a set of a commercial and I would hear the first foul word out of somebody's mouth. I remember doing this one morning, the first person I met in the parking lot walking in, blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh my word, this is going to be a long day. <laughs> but it just kind of, you just kind of go, oh man, I used to say those things and didn't think anything of it. Now it kind of tweaks me, you know? And lastly, relationally, the new birth establishes genuine fellowship with the triune God and meaningful relationships with other believers. It was interesting for Julie and I. This was something that I think we didn't even feel like we had to work at. It just was, in our case, something that kind of naturally happened. The group of friends that we had that were not believers that we had been spending lots of time with, everybody just kind of drifted, you know, just kind of seemed to drift. It wasn't like an automatic, wow, we're not hanging out with those people anymore. Them saying, oh, we're not hanging out with those Christians. You know, it just kind of happened, right? This brings us all to our third and final point, that there's also a renewing by the Holy Spirit. There's a renewing by the Holy Spirit. Renewing simply means to make new, right? Renew, make new, make like new, restore to freshness or vigor or perfection, also renovate. Webster's also has uh, synonyms like regenerate, revive, rebuild, replace, replenish, restore, rejuvenate. Um, Here's a little, uh, little piece of uh, trivia for you. Did you know that every five minutes, some five million cells in your human body are destroyed and replaced? They are renewed. Your body, by God's design, renews itself. You might be familiar with the life cycle of some plants. They start out as seeds. A seed ends up in the ground where it germinates, it opens up, its roots start to reach into the soil, grabbing onto water and nutrients, and the plant continues to grow and mature. It blooms, it produces seeds, and then what? It dies, right? It dies. And of course, the seeds go into the ground, and this cycle of renewal continues. Autumn, of course, is a time of dormancy or death, spring, a time of renewal. And of course, what we are interested in here is that, again, spiritual renewal. And our word here refers to new in nature. And while renewal and regeneration are close cousins, Kitchen again uh, points out that the noun regeneration points to the act of entering new life, while renewing points more to the qualitative nature of that new life, end quote. We understand renewal in two respects, the first being at the moment of salvation, as a part of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, again, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. He is a new creature at that moment of being in Christ. In Romans 8, 2, renewal is in the sense of being set free. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In that sense, a renewal has taken place. And like 
regeneration by what means is one renewed? Same answer, the Holy Spirit. Brought on by the Holy Spirit. Accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Not of ourselves. And in the second respect, then renewal is also that work of salvation that continues on as sanctification, right? The ongoing process of renewing and being renewed as in 2 Corinthians 4.16 where Paul says, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Or Colossians 3 verses 10 and 11 which speaks of the New self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Romans 12 and verse 2 tells us that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, part of the means by which the Holy Spirit accomplishes our salvation and sanctification is the fact that starting with the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would now actually permanently indwell all believers at the moment of their conversion. So it's not just that the Holy Spirit in that mysterious way is regenerating and renewing, but He actually takes up residence inside every believer. We, we read about this, Acts 2 and verse 38, where Peter said to them, he's preaching, and he said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Corinthians 3.16, where Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The implied answer, you should. You should. Romans 8 and verse 9, again, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Therefore, he wouldn't be dwelling in you. In other words, if you don't belong to Christ, you do not have the Holy Spirit in you. If you do belong to Christ, the Spirit of God, which is to say the Spirit of Christ, dwells in you. And 2 Corinthians 6.16 tells us that God dwells in his people. In Ephesians 2.21 that we are a holy temple of the Lord, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, friends, as we always ask, what should be our application this morning for learning these truths about God's washing and regenerating and renewing us by His Holy Spirit. Be reminded, friends, again, unlike some of the other uh, uh, beliefs and theologies uh, out there from some other groups, this is not anything that we are able to accomplish on our own. It's not anything that we are called to accomplish or that we can accomplish. It is all by means of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that washes and regenerates and renews. And we need to be absolutely clear about that. We need to be absolutely clear about that or you should be absolutely clear about that Because, again, maybe you are somebody that needs to believe in these truths. And that there is nothing that you can do to save yourself, but everything that Jesus, through His Spirit, will do to save you. Your call is to repent and believe. It's a response to the gospel that you have heard. So, repent and believe. Right? Repent and believe today. Today is the day of your salvation. And and for those that have repented and believed, we need to understand these truths and be clear about them so that we can accurately, clearly explain them to others, right? Now maybe this regenerating and renewal is getting a little deeper than, than your normal gospel presentation to somebody, but does it mean you shouldn't understand it for yourself? Because maybe there will come a time and, and you will have that opportunity to share a little more in-depthly about these truths of salvation. And if you are indeed a believer, let me ask you this. 
how should what you've learned about God's kindness, his love, his mercy, his rich outpouring of his Holy Spirit upon you, and all that Jesus has accomplished on the cross to make this possible for you, how should it affect you? How should it affect you? Beyond the fact that you are indeed saved. And yes, you will be sanctified. But when you just think and dwell on these truths, what should your reaction be? This goes back to what we've been talking about, right? Where we got to get out of this mindset that the gospel was just at that moment of our salvation. That the gospel was just about our conversion. The gospel is for us each and every day of our lives. Even if it's simply to just take stock of these truths, how they have affected you in your life and how God has saved you and sanctifies you and to just, just fall down on your knees giving him praise and adoration or just giving him glory or just telling him thank you, thank you Lord, that we would be focused on the gospel each and every day. And of course, what then should these truths that have been bestowed on you cause you to do inside the church and of course as we've been saying outside the church i mean are are we living like regenerated renewed washed people in front of each other encouraging one another and then what about outside these walls out there in the community So if you're here this morning and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus, I pray that today is your day of salvation. I pray here you might pray your own prayer of uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins, asking Jesus to forgive you, trusting that he is the one who has accomplished what needed to be accomplished on the cross for your salvation. Not just that he died, but he went to the ground and resurrected three days later so that you too could have forgiveness of sins and resurrected eternal life and and if you were a believer hearing this that we would ask those questions how how should these truths affect me each and every day am i am i applying the gospel to my life each and every day how is that affecting my interactions with others here in this body how is that affecting my interactions with people outside these doors scripture quotations taken from the new american standard bible copyright by the lockman foundation